I'm going to begin reading from 1 Samuel chapter 3, the story of Eli and Samuel. And the Lord kept calling Samuel, and finally Eli said, It must be the Lord calling you. I'm not calling you. So say, Speak, for thy servant is listening. And then I begin reading at 3.11. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. And that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house for the iniquity of which his sons knew, and brought a curse upon himself, and he did not rebuke them. Eli is a classic example of a godly man whose children brought him a lot of shame and a lot of heartache and really quite a bit of disaster that went with it. Eli and his sons. I don't know of anything that cuts us more deeply as parents than our children. We're so close to them. And I know as I look at this audience that there are many of you whose hearts have been broken by your children for whom you prayed and worked so long and they're not living as you would like for them to do. This was really brought to my attention in a strong way when I was in West Chicago. We had a men's breakfast on Sunday morning and then a prayer circle uh, that weekend I was there. And there was a man right beside me who began to pray for his children who were unfaithful, grown children. And then he began to choke up. And then he just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I was right beside him. I, I couldn't go ahead and pray, you know, till he said amen. And, uh, and I, I just, I could feel that man. I just wanted to go over and hug him and say, it's okay, it'll be all right. The Lord will bless you. Maybe they'll come back, I don't know. But I, I never got so close at that early age with the hurt that that man felt. And I still remember that, as you can tell by the sound of my voice right now. And I imagine there are many of you who have shed many tears over that. Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten thy son while there is hope. The subject of my lesson is, while there is hope. It seems to me that when children get here, they get in the liquid stage. You can't do much with them at all. You just sort of uh, keep one end fed and the other end dry, and that's about it. I always just gave it to mother and said, there, you do it. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and, of course, mothers can do things like that. And then they get into what you may call the jelly stage, where they learn a few things, and you can sort of control their lives a little bit. They learn what no means, or they play like they don't sometime, and, and they can obey simple rules and regulations. And then they get into what I would call the clay stage, where... As God gives you the wisdom to do so, you can mold and shape attitudes and hearts, and you really are able to have a great influence upon them, one of the greatest influences they'll ever have. And then in the teen years, that clay begins to harden, and you're not going to make a lot of major changes usually. Maybe you can sand off a few rough edges and do a little polishing, but uh, by and large, the mold has been set. And I'm not uh, giving this lesson to bring grief on any of you, but I am giving this lesson mainly to the young couples in order to help you and to encourage you and certainly in no way to discourage you. I will warn you ahead of time, this sermon is longer than the one tonight, 
I meant to give the long one tonight because I know you're hungry after church today, but I'll need about five more minutes than usual, probably. But I want this one right now because I feel that more of the young parents will be here. And you're the ones that I'm targeting this to. And yes, I gave this lesson about 20 years ago here, and some of you are going to want to remind me of that, but we have a whole new generation of mothers and fathers. And it's not because I have no other sermons on this subject or any other subject. This is the one I think you need to hear. I want to give you a set of L's. Number one is to love them. Titus 2.4, Paul told the older women to train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. And someone would say, well, this is easy. There's hardly a one of us who doesn't love our children and would probably even give our lives for them. And we do love them. But at any rate, they need to know that love. A lot of children grow up and never understand how much their fathers and mothers love them, mainly sometimes the father who seems to distance himself from any kind of an emotional attachment there. And they need to let them know that they're loved. There's a song you may have heard, The Way to Handle a Woman. That woke some of you up. You'd like to know that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and, and it goes on down and says, it's to love her. Simply love her. Simply love her. And I think the same thing could be said for a child, the way to handle a child. First and foremost is to love him. Simply love him. Simply love him. A man about my age, when I preached this in one place, said, You know, I don't have any regrets about my career as a father. And I guess if I had to do over again, I wouldn't change much, except I think I would be a little more patient and a lot more loving. And I thought, I'll remember that and share that with young couples. And I thought also, that's probably what I would do. That's probably what I would do. Instead of being so afraid that they were not going to do just right, be a little more patient with them and a lot more loving. The second L that I want to give you, all of these come under love, as you can tell. The next four are just ways we love them. And the second one is to listen to them. Give them your undivided attention. I was reading 1 Samuel 25 in a freshman Bible class many years ago, and there's a statement in there about Nabal, who's a fool, as his name means. And in 1 Samuel 25, 17, uh, there's a statement made by one of the, uh, his wife, I think it was, not a servant, but his wife, and said that he is such an ill-tempered man no one can speak peaceably to him. And I was just reading that in a Bible class. Some girl in the audience or in the class just burst out and said, That sounds just like my daddy. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that one. I knew we didn't need to explore that right then. And I remember looking at her and I said, Well, I'm sorry. And then I went on going to the next verse. You know, going to the next verse is the best thing a teacher can do. Uh, when he doesn't know what to say, move on. And uh, it's good advice for you. But she made a deep impression on me. That was probably 30 years ago, and I don't even know who she is. She may be here today. I have no idea who she was. But I'll never, ever forget that. Such an ill-tempered person. 
that no man can speak peaceably to him. James 3.17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, listen to this, easy to be entreated. Easy to be entreated. To be listened to. To be listened to. We need to know what's going on in our children's lives, and they need to establish that line of communication with us. I think that we also have to find the time when we can do that, when they are most susceptible. Our daughter, when school was out and she came in, she would sit at that table and would just go for an hour, debriefing. I'm sorry to say I didn't have the patience to sit and listen to all of it. I just soon have the abridged version. But her mother, bless her heart, sat there. She unloaded the whole thing. Our boy, he didn't have time hardly to say hi. He shot in there, changed his clothes, and was out the back door. Now, bedtime is the best time for him. He'd do anything to keep him going to bed, even talk to his parents. <laughs> anything to delay, you know. So take advantage of it. And so that's what we did. And uh, so uh, this was the time when we could sit there by his little bed and and he would pour his heart out and until finally it was time for him to go ahead and go to sleep. Mealtime and bedtime or shared times, when they just come home from school, you need to find it. If I had it to do over again, I would have gotten a king-size bed in those days because in the night they'd come in there and I'd get grumpy because I'd get crowded off on the edge. Usually end up going and getting in another one. We have a king-size bed now, but they don't ever crawl in anymore, will us. <laughs> we don't really need it now as bad as we did then. For we could have all just been comfortable there together. I've thought of that a lot. But I guess it wasn't too bad. Bedtime, mealtime, times like that. I'm going to have occasion to say more about this later, but mention it now. But the story of David and Absalom is a tragedy, what happened to that boy, and how David grieved for him, as you know. But you know, I think a lot of David's grief was because of guilt. Because when that boy had killed his brother, he was uh, banished from the kingdom for three years. And then he was finally allowed to come back into the kingdom, but David said, he'll not see my face. Five years went by when that boy needed to see the face of his father. And by that time, his spirit had become so embittered, you remember that he led this rebellion against his own father, seeking to kill his father and take over the kingdom. And he ended up, as you know, being killed himself by Joab. There are lots of tragedies sometimes that could have been avoided if we as mothers and fathers could take time, make time, to listen, to learn where our children are living, what's going on in their lives, and maybe even more than that, just communicate to them by listening that we care. One of the greatest ways we can tell anyone, our parents, our spouses, our friends, that we care is by listening to them, really listening to them and being interested in them. Number three. This is a hard one. Limit them. In Romans 1.30, we have a terrible list of sins, the very worst sins of the Gentiles. In 2 Timothy 3.2, we have a similar list. 
telling about all of the bad times that will soon be coming and men will be this, that, and the other. And right in the middle of all of those bad sins in both Romans and Timothy, it says, disobedient to parents. I wonder where that one came from. Somebody said, we don't have undisciplined children, we have undisciplined parents. And I think that it's very important for us, and probably one of the hardest jobs in being a parent, is in holding the reins as tightly as they should be, but not more tightly than they ought to be. And knowing just when to administer what kind of discipline that needs to be given. Young people, do you know why we parents overreact? Just go off the hook almost whenever you do something and blow the roof off the house sometimes? Well, let me tell you, and it'll make you feel better about it the next time we do. It's because we love you. We very seldom ever get that upset about someone we don't care about. Did you know that? Oh, well, who cares? You know, I don't like him anyway. You know, sort of like that. But let one of our children do something. You are so deep to the center of our hearts that it just cuts so deeply. And sometimes, I'm sorry to say, we just blow before we think. Am I not right, mothers and daddies? I think I am. That's even my husbands and wives sometimes have stronger arguments than just neighbors. Isn't that right? Maybe not. I better not get into that. (laughs) We overreact because we love them so much. Our little girl one time, I guess I can mention she's in here, she did something she shouldn't and I yelled out at her right before bedtime and she went on to bed. Then I got to feeling guilty about it. You know how that is. I shouldn't have said that. And I went back and I said, Lori, I'm so sorry that I acted like that. I apologize. I shouldn't yell like that. She said, that's all right. If you didn't love me, you wouldn't yell at me. (laughs) Some of you probably think you're very loved. Is that right? I don't know. Well, I'll never forget that little comment that she made as a very, very young child. Irma Bombeck, pretty much of an authority. I like to read her, and I'm sorry that she passed away where we don't read her article anymore. And one time she had a little article here where the child says, You don't love me. And the part that I thought uh, was so impressive was at the end of that article, and she said, And most of all, I loved you. But I told you no, and you hated me for it. I love my child too much to cross him. Oh, no. If you really loved your child, you would go through what it takes to cross him. Even if it does mean a very, very unpleasant day. That is real love. A child left to himself brings shame to his parents. Proverbs twenty-nine, fifteen. The fourth L that I want to give you, this one may be the hardest. I don't know which of these would be the hardest. Probably one for some, one for another. And that is to let go. It's so hard to let go. You may remember in the beautiful love chapter, 1 Corinthians thirteen five, it says, Love seeketh not her own. Do you remember that statement? Love is not selfish. Love is not graspy. Love Let's go. Love seeketh not her own. 
One of the most important things is to learn to let go. One of the hardest things is to love to let go. It's hard for a father to give his daughter away in marriage. And Treva and I got married nearly 45 years ago, coming up in about two months. Her father was crying. It might have been because he saw what she was getting. <laughs> but I'd like to think it wasn't. She was the last of eight children, six who reached adulthood. And when we went off in a blaze of glory that Sunday afternoon, they went home to an empty house. Their baby had left. And I'm sure it was hard for them to do that. And, of course, we began to understand that when our children reached that age. And we still miss them sometimes. Especially around the table, it looked like there are empty seats around the table. And at other times. But one of the most important things we have to learn to do is that there is a time to let go. And if we have done our job well, well then that's a good thing to do. It's what we ought to do and it's something that's easy to do. Some of you are school teachers here. How many of you have had their mothers Bring their little darlings to school and you can't get them to go home. <laughs> and keep on picking at it until you find, they finally get them crying. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's hard to let them go. What about college? About the middle of August or a little after, we're going to have scads and scads of freshmen come in here. At least we hope we are. Don't we, Dave? <laughs> Better come. <laughs> scads of them, and there are going to be lots of mamas and daddies. And I've seen that. Of course, I think we've gotten more sophisticated, but I remember in the olden days, the mom and the daddy would be there unloading stuff and taking it up the fire escape sometimes, or up the stairs and setting the room up and trying to put two rooms of furniture in a half room, or a third of a room, and uh, back and forth they go with it. You'll see them, and you'll see them here Sunday morning, usually, as they sit together in little huddles and really not communicating too much with the others of us. And if you make the mistake of eating out that Sunday, which is not a good idea, uh, you will see them huddled in little tables just alone, picking at their food. Most of the times they will bring them back and they'll... Uh, one mother mother will see the room once more to make sure it's perfect, and it is. It'll never look like that again, but what she doesn't know won't hurt her. Well, it will look like that right before she comes back. But uh, at any rate, normally it'll get to normal very quickly. And then finally kiss that child by. I heard about one man who kissed his daughter by, got in the car, drove around the corner, going north on Harding Drive, pulled his car over, and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I bet he's not the only one who has done that. As soon as he got out of sight. It is hard to let go. You know, we parents are working ourselves out of a job. We are trying to get our children self-reliant so they can live life successfully without us. Because more than likely they're going to have to do that. Because they should live longer than we do. And we've got to get them where they don't really need us in that sense. They'll always need us. And always love us, I'm sure, but, but they can make it on their own. We have to let them take risks. 
We have to let them make their own mistakes sometimes. We can't go out and referee the playground all the time. We have to let them fight their own battles out there and work out their own difficulties. We can't go down to school and try to make everybody be sweet to yours. They have to learn to do that on their own. We're not doing them any favor. We've got to let them play football. Our little boy wanted to play football, and he was just a little bitty old thing when he was playing football. He looked like a, a little chicken out there, standing on one leg like this. And uh, I got there at halftime, and Treva was a nervous wreck by then, and I saw, soon I saw why. He was playing tailback, which is disastrous, you know. They'd give him the ball and mash, you know, and give him the ball and mash, you know. Well, he went home, and he thought he had been a hero and had a great day. We never told him any different. We said, good going, man, good going. And I remember what an experience that was. It was very unpleasant and nerve-wracking. Of course, as you know, we finally did grow up and make a big boy and do all right, but uh, he wasn't much then. Uh, at least, uh, yes, he was, because he was out there trying. But we have to let him do that. We have to let him climb trees. We have to let him drive the car. Ooh, the first time he takes the car off. Or she, <laughs> and uh, there have been times, you know, I've heard that thing put her back in, and I'll say, oh, the car's home. We'll check the fenders tomorrow. <laughs> I don't want to go see right now. And uh, we've got to let them do that. We've got to let them go on places. We've got to let them girls date boys. And all the things they bring home, you know, to come take them out, you know, and we wonder there's not any of them that's good enough for our daughter. But uh, we have to let her go out and find that herself. Some of you may remember this story, but it's a true story. When I was about six or seven years old, we lived in Lexington, Kentucky, and Franklin Preston got my tricycle. And he was a good bit older than I was and quite a bit larger. Well, it was after five. Daddy was home, so I just ran to the house. I said, Daddy, Franklin Preston's got my tricycle. Go get it. And he was reading the paper, and he looked down and said, Well, I'm not going to go get it. It's your tricycle. You go get it. I never was more disgusted in my father. <laughs> I thought maybe he and I both afraid of Franklin Preston. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and there he was out there just riding it back and forth in front of the house, just daring me to do something. I went on out in the backyard, and I looked underneath the house, and I found a metal rod and crawled under there and fetched that thing. About so long, so wide, half inch thick, quarter inch. I don't know what he went to. And I walked around the driveway, around front. He was still there. And I raised that rod over my head, and I just charged across the street. And I said, you'd better give me that tricycle. <laughs> well, we can be thankful that uh, he didn't call him a bluff. He jumped off that thing and ran home just as hard as he could. And I laid that rod across the handlebars and rode it home. I didn't know it until about 20 years later that Daddy was looking out the windows more nervous than I was. <laughs> he was going to go out there and pick up the pieces, but I didn't know he was even caring. You know, I've thought, this is just a side point. A lot of times we feel like we find our battles alone here. And maybe our Father in Heaven might laugh at us someday if we bring that up in the judgment or afterward and say, <laughs> we had you covered on all sides. We had you covered. There was no way you could have lost. There was no way I could have lost that day, but I didn't know it. I imagine there are a lot of battles of life where we feel so exposed and so vulnerable. 
And I imagine there's a Father in heaven there that can say to us, there's no way you can lose. We've got you covered. But we've got to give our children the opportunities. We can stand on the sidelines and we can cheer them and we can encourage them and we can be there, but they have to play the game. We cannot play the game for them. They've got to play the game. And all we do when we try to do that is make emotional cripples out of them. One more point, number five. Lead them to God. These words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently unto your children, and you shall speak of them when you sit us down, and when you rise up, and when you walk by the way, you shall bind them as signs upon thy hands, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. You know what he's talking about there? Teach your children well. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. Some of these things may should be taken literally, but some of them are figuratively saying, don't ever do anything more important or let anything become more important. There is nothing more important than to train your children in the way that they should go. The first thing that we need to do, parents, is to be the right example. Our children learn more from what we do than from what we say. And what we do confirms or doesn't confirm what we say. And they're quick to notice that. And we need to live the right life in front of them. They need to see us read the Word of God. They need to see us bow our heads at the table and pray to God. They need us to be there with them when they're young and say their prayers with them and let them know that we pray with them. We cannot depend upon the educational program of the college church to do all of the teaching of the Bible for our children. We must do it. They need to see us here at every service if we ever expect them to develop a pattern of regular and faithful attendance. We're going to have to live it in front of them. There's no other way that we can do it. In our homes, we need to be praying with them, not only that, but having even devotions with them. Maybe singing a song, as I mentioned a moment ago, or teaching them the Word of God. We don't leave that up just, as I said, to the Sunday school. It's our job. Fathers, teach your children well. That's where the responsibility lies. We tried to have devotions when our children were little. One time our little boy grabbed the songbook, I think it was, and ran into there and he says, it's time for our commotions. <laughs> well, he was more right than he thought he was. <laughs> With a five-year-old and a three-year-old, it was a commotion. But they need, they need to have that. They need for us to be faithful, to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They need to see that pattern. We can preach to them all we want to, but they learn from the way we behave. And if we expect them to be faithful Christians, we are going to have to be faithful Christians, not just for them, of course, but for ourselves. That's our duty. But how much more when we are mothers and fathers and our children are developing 
their habits from us and their attitudes. They need to see us involved in the church's work, not just a pew warmer. They need to see that the Lord's kingdom means everything in the world to us. And see us do the things that are known as service to others and to the Lord's kingdom. They need to know that. They need to be sent to Christian camps. They need to be encouraged to go to youth meetings. And yes, they need to be encouraged to go to a Christian college. And there's a good one not far from here. But you know, if you want to go to one of the other Christian colleges to get away from home, I don't have any real problem with it. I don't know who the admissions man is going to get me right here, but sometimes that's the thing that ought to be done. I think most of you ought to be over there uh, when you go to college. But there may be some that should. If you go to a Christian college, that's, that's so important to me. I had a little girl run up to me one time and said, I'm going to, I forgot what it was, Oklahoma Christian. What do you think of that? I said, I think it's wonderful. We're not in competition with each other, somewhat except for faculty, funds, and and students. (laughs) But uh, we're really not. We're all in the same business together. But we do need to see, let our children see the importance of a Christian education. And you're sitting there saying, yeah, of course you do. You work there. This is where you make your money. No. I work here because I believe in it. When we got out of, uh, we got married and I got out of grad school in August of 60, we went to Wood River, Illinois, as most of you know. By the way, the Gentries were some of the most wonderful encouragement to Treva and me that we could have had. And my heart is broken along with yours, Leah and David and the grandchildren. As you know, Brother Gentry was buried this week. But he was there, and so many others who loved us and took us in. But I told the elders there that <clears throat> if I ever get a chance to pre- uh, teach at a Christian college, I will leave you. <clears throat> My ambition is to teach at a Christian college. And I want you to know that I have no problem with what you're paying me or how you treat me. And Treva is happy here, and oh, they thought she was the greatest thing in the world. Of course, I always knew that. But anyway, uh, at any rate, I said we're both very happy here. And uh, got a call from Joe Hacker to come teach Bible. I was in a meeting in Rector, Arkansas at the time. Treva was with me, and we sat down there and decided this is the move we want to make. So we called Joe Hacker back and said we'd come. And we called Brother Harwood. You know Brother Harwood? And uh, told him what happened. And he said, well... We knew we'd lose you. We didn't know when, but we knew it was coming. You see, I believe in this place, and my wife believes in this place, and I'm looking at hundreds and hundreds of people that believe in this place, and you may say I'm preaching to the choir, but there are people here who need to know what's going on right under their noses and really appreciate it. Sometimes we can get so close to something, we don't really appreciate what all we have here. And we need to give our support to it. And we need to see that our children attend a Christian college. Let them go to one of the others if they can't go here. But I believe they need to be here. What matters most in a home is not the furniture, or the food we eat, or the decorations, 
or the yard. What matters most in a home is the Spirit of Christ. That's what matters most. And I'm afraid some of us are not giving the attention to what really matters the most. This is what matters the most. There was a woman and his husband who had a lot of children. And she would go to bed at night. I thought this was rather touching. And every night she would say to her husband, Were all the children in? And he would say, Yes, Mother, all the children are in. And I hope that one day when we stand before the Lord at the end of life, and we've entered heaven, that we might say to the Father, Are all the children in? And I hope the Father can say, Yes, all the children are in. All that is in me, all that I could ever say to you, communicate to you how deeply I feel about this. I prayerfully ask that each of you re-examine your responsibilities as mothers and fathers. And give your time and your attention and your lives to that that matters the most. If you would like to come for prayer or anything we can do to help you, we invite you to do so as we stand to sing.